today, Corsairs and Corinthians. A Corsair is defined as a, an experienced shipman. A Corsair is a privateer, somebody who's very experienced in all things nautical. They know the routes, they know the waters that they're traveling, they know the ins and outs, everything to do on the boat, and more often than not, they're armed and they're also studied in warfare. A borderline pirate, but without all the looting and stealing and all that kind of negative stuff. A Corinthian, now I know there are two books in the Bible, First and Second Corinthians, but the word literally means a, an amateur yachtsman or an amateur shipman. So somebody who is taking to the water for the very first time. Somebody who's not as experienced. So in this message, Corsairs and Corinthians, what I submit to you is that in the body of Christ, we have a mixture of both. And in this church in particular, we have a great mixture of both. There are some of us that are experienced with spirit-filled church, some of us that are experienced with Christ, some of us that are experienced in, in witnessing and, and walking this Christian walk, and others of us, that uh, some of this stuff is brand new. Some of it's very brand new. Now, naturally, we would think that you always want to look to the people that have more experience, and there's a little bit of truth to that, but there's also something about coming into something fresh. Without having all the religious doctrine, without having all the baggage, without having all of the seemingly know-how, when somebody just walks in and they're just real, they just need God right now. They just know that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. They're not sure about the hallelujahs. They don't know all the Christian lingo, how to pray. They're not sure if they should be down on their knees or lifting their hands or crying out or whatever. They just know that they need God and they know that their family needs God and they know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that's all they know. That's a cool place to be in. That's an inspiring thing to see. I remember many of you, when you were brand new, when you came in and, and all you knew was you felt something, you saw something, you needed something. And all of us that have been around for a while, you don't, you, we might have told you at some point, but we'd go out to eat, we'd go to Chili's, we'd go to wherever, and we'd be talking about that new guy, that new girl, and how inspiring it is to see them seek after God. Because sometimes experience turns into routine, and routine gets boring, and routine gets lackluster, and we start to lose our passion. What I want to tell you this morning is that Corsair or Corinthian, God has a calling on your life. And it's time to step up to the plate, not take a step back. Let's read Matthew chapter 12 again. I want to tell you a story this morning. We're going to focus on the most successful evangelists in the entire Bible. The highest success rate. Jonah is the most successful evangelist in the entire Bible. Why do we say that? We're going to read the story this morning, and you will see. But I want to go through Matthew chapter 12 again. Certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from you. He answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, that's the place where he sent Jonah, we'll read about it in a second, shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So if you would, flip in your Old Testament to the book of Jonah. And we're going to read through a lot of it. And I think you're going to see it in a light that maybe you haven't seen it before. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Jonah was a corsair among Corinthians. He was about to jump on board a ship that he didn't know anything about embark upon a, a life that he didn't know anything about in the midst of people that thought they knew what they were doing. 
chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, where he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down to go with them. Verse number 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was likely to be broken. God called to Jonah and said, very simply, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach the word of God, for they are exceedingly wicked. And Jonah goes down to Joppa and jumps on a ship and headed for a land called Tarshish. At that time, if you study a biblical map of the known world, Tarshish is, is absolutely the furthest away that you could possibly get from Nineveh. So God said, go over here. And Jonah said, how about I go way over here instead? So he jumped on his boat, immature. Here's what I want you to see. Why did God call Jonah out of everybody that was alive on the face of the earth? Do you think God just looked down upon the earth and said, let me find the most inexperienced, unfaithful guy I can and ask him to go to the most wicked land known to man at that time and preach my word? Does God usually do that? It's not a very godlike thing to do. If God was going to call a pastor or an individual, an evangelist of some sort, to go over to the Middle East for the purpose of, which actually that's where Nineveh is, is uh, current day Iraq. So if he was going to call somebody to go over there to some of the most wicked parts of the earth for the purpose of making the people repent, do you think he's going to call some random guy that doesn't know him, hasn't served him, doesn't know his word, hasn't shown any faithfulness, hasn't shown any ability, doesn't walk in a calling or anointing to go do that? Or do you think God is going to find somebody that he can count on to be faithful that knows a little bit about what they're doing. If he's calling them to go preach, they need to know how to preach, right? I would assume he's looking down and he's finding a guy that has done some things. You can study the life of Jonah before this and uh, his father that is named here and see that Jonah has a lineage and is known as a prophet. God called him because he was able and had shown the ability to be faithful. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, I'm not sure if that was God. I'm going to go to Tarshish just in case. That's just like some of us. Some of us in our experience or lack thereof. God calls you to do a thing and you run in the opposite direction from the presence of the Lord because it can be a scary thing to do. So the Lord sent out a great wind and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was likely to be broken. The mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship to the sea. So they would lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the sides of the ship and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise and call upon your God. If so be that God will think upon us that we shall not perish. And they said, everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots. So we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where have you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord God of heaven, which has made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said unto him, what shall we do that the sea may be calm to us? For the sea rot and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So the sea will be calm. For I know that for my sake, this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea rot and was tempestuous against them. See, there are so many people that will preach and that will teach you 
if you have a calling on your life, if God has called you to do a thing and you turn around and decide not to do it, that you are walking away from your calling and God is going to strip you of your anointing. That he's going to give you a chance to do it. And if you don't do it, he's going to leave you alone. If you don't do it, he's going to take the opportunity away from you. So people teach. Let me let me get a let me get a volunteer. All right. Stephen is Jonah and I get to play God this particular this particular play. Jonah's quite handsome. So I've called. Yeah, Jonah's Jonah's the better looking. Spend some more time out in the sun, too. So I'm calling out to Jonah. I need you to go to Nineveh. Jonah turns around and goes to Tarshish. So just walk until you can't walk anymore. So what the church will have you think is that when you turn your back and walk away from something like that, God turns his back and he walks away and finds somebody else. And he starts pursuing who is going to follow me, who is going to listen to me, who's going to carry out my plan. Now come back to the middle. In reality, this is what happens. You can go all the way. I call, I say, Jonah, I want you to go this way to Nineveh. Jonah takes off and he's going to Tarshish. This is what God does. He follows just like this. He doesn't let you go. He taps you on the shoulder. He says, Jonah, hold on, buddy. Hold on. Nineveh's the other way. And Jonah says, I don't want to go. So then God sends a wind to rock the ship. And he says, listen, Jonah, I've called you to do a thing and you're going to do it. And I'm not going to leave you alone until you do it. You can be seated. Thank you. Everybody give Stephen a hand clap. God will pursue you. God does not run away from you. God is not allocated only towards people that are uh, either experienced enough or godly enough that they hear everything that he says and they turn around and say, yes, sir. And they do it on the first try. How many of us are good at that? How many of us have ever done that? How many of you felt like you've heard God tell you to do something and you weren't sure? So you, you purposely didn't do it. Like God has said on your heart, go speak to this guy you're about to walk across in the mall. But I was going to go to the Apple store, so that must not have been God. It doesn't mean that God's going to say, well, that's it. You won't talk to people. I'm not going to use you. You're going to go into the Apple store, and there's going to be somebody else. And God's going to say, well, then talk to this person. He's not going to leave you alone. If you have asked him into your heart, if you have asked him to lead you and guide you, if you have a desire to walk with God, when you run away, he runs right behind you. And if you run too far, he kicks up the wind and he stops the ship and everybody else will notice. And they'll be like, what is going on? Why isn't this working out? Things in your life and you'll, you'll start throwing things out just like they did on the ship to lighten the load. Like, I'm not sure what's going on. Let me get rid of this. Let me get rid of that. And that's not a bad thing. Sometimes we need to get rid of stuff. But eventually you're going to realize God keeps bugging me to do this thing and I'm too scared to do it. And I thought if I ran away, he'd leave me alone. But he won't. So he kicked up the wind. The men rode hard to try to bring Jonah to shore so he could run away again. But it didn't work. So they cried to the Lord in verse 14 and said, We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So they took up Jonah and they cast him into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Amazing thing. God put a calling on Jonah's life. The very first people that he encountered on that calling were a ship full of men who worshiped false gods. And God used Jonah's disobedience and caused the whole thing to happen. And by the time they had to throw him off the ship, they got saved. Because they saw God move in such a miraculous way. 
in such a powerful way. They said, you, got, you notice in how we read? They first, they, they sent prayers up to their God, and it says specifically lowercase g, their gods. And then at the end, they're making sacrifice to capital G. And then the men in verse 16 feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice and made vows. That means they went into covenant with God. Whether you act like a Corinthian who's inexperienced or a Corsair that knows what they're doing, God will have his way. God will have his way. Some of you might be experiencing turmoil or a storm in your life. You may have asked God into your heart recently. You may have asked God into your heart a long time ago. You might be going through things. You might have questions on your heart. God, I'm following you. I've asked you into my heart. I've dedicated myself to you. Why does it seem like everything around me is going crazy? Why are all of these storms happening? Why is my shit being torn apart when I've said I will follow you and you said you will bless me and you said you will keep me safe? And God wants you to realize because you might not have meant to, but I asked you to go left and you decided to go right. And the only way that I can turn you back around left is if I make this storm kick up the boat and you decide to jump overboard. And when you do that, I've got something. Verse 17, the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Sunday school version, not our Sunday school, but typical Sunday school version. Jonah got swallowed up by a whale. I know in the New Testament it uses the word whale in English, but it's not necessarily a whale in Greek. Here in Hebrew, it's a large fish, not a word that necessarily means whale. But, I mean, that doesn't really matter. It was a huge fish, might as well be a whale. And the Sunday school version, uh, the animated version, Jonah gets swallowed up by the well. He's in the belly of the well. He's got like a coffee table and a rocking chair. He's lighting a little fire. He's sitting there really like feeling bad about what he's done. He's trying to repent, figuring out how he's going to get out of this well, playing a game of solitaire, whatever he can do to pass the time because he's going to be in here for a few days and he doesn't know how long. Sunday school version, Jonah lives in the well three days and three nights. But Jesus said... No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. Did Jesus live or did the body of Jesus die? We know the soul never doesn't die ever. And we know the spirit doesn't die. The only thing that can die is the body. When Jesus Christ was in the grave, was his body alive or dead? Dead, dead right? So I wonder what really happened to Jonah. Let's read in chapter 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me out of the belly of hell. I cried and you heard my voice. When you look that word up in Hebrew, that word hell is literally Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for hell. So it appears that some portion of Jonah is not in the whale of the fish, but is in a different place. Verse three. For you have cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All of the billows and the waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet will I look again towards thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. This is describing drowning. The death closed me round about, and the weeds were wrapped around my head. What was around the head of Christ as he was taken on the, off the cross and buried? A crown of thorns. That'll look a lot like a crown of weeds if you wrapped a crown of weeds around somebody's head. So you have this going on thousands of years earlier. 
I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. That's talking about the earth at the bottom of the sea. The earth with her bars was about me. This represents a prison. Yet you have brought my life up from corruption, O Lord, my God. That Hebrew word for corruption is the word for grave. It doesn't get translated any other way. It is 110% pit or grave. So Jonah is talking about how part of him was in the pit. Part of him was held under the earth with bars above him. Part of him was crying out from Sheol. The belly of hell, verse 2. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came up and see into your holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. That is a deep line. That is a serious scripture that you've probably never been taught to memorize from the book of Jonah. You know about the well, you know about the three days, you know what's going to happen here in a minute. But this little line gets lost. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. That's what he did. His body has found its way into the belly of hell. I'm sorry, his body is in the fish. His soul has found its way to the belly of hell. A body can literally stay embalmed better inside the belly of a well or a large fish than with the embalming fluid that we use on people before they have their open casket funeral because of the fish oils, which I'm sure everybody's heard about these days, that people take in in mass quantities. All of the fish oils are so good for your skin, so good for your body, not to mention the salt that is in the seawater, that it actually would preserve in three days and three nights would not be a big deal. The body would still look about the same. God knows it would look better than three days and three nights just in a grave. So the body is literally inside the fish, but the soul that appears is crying out of hell and saying, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord spake unto the fish and vomited out Jonah on the dry land. Uh, Chapter number three, verse number one. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Everybody say, Arise. Arise. Go out to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Literally, Jonah died. Literally, his body was dead inside that fish. And literally, his soul had been carried down to Sheol, the pit. And just like David wrote in the book of Psalms, He said, even if I find my place in hell, yet will I cry out to the Lord, my God, because he is merciful. He is graceful and salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Some of you need to know right now that your place in this life, your situation, it feels like you are in the pit of hell and you have been taught that God has no place in hell, that it is only the abode of the enemy and the spirit of God will not go there because the spirit of God doesn't live in sin. I have a message for you this morning. We are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. He does not like to abide in the presence of sin, but for your sake, he endures it. He will reach that nail scarred hand right down into the pit of hell and pull you out of your situation. If you will cry out to God, no matter where you find yourself, he'll do it. How does he do it? He speaks to the fish and the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. Resurrection. When it comes into New Testament teaching, 
God says, I would first have you die to yourself. Everybody say repent. That's what repentance is. It's the blood that is shed. It's death. Then I want you to be baptized. Everybody say baptized. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Baptized. So first Jonah's body dies and he is covered in water. We are seeing death by repentance and we are seeing baptism by water. The next thing God says is when you go down in that water and you dedicate your life to me, I'm going to speak into your dead soul. I'm going to speak into the dead works of your life. And that thing is going to vomit you out in resurrection style. And no longer will you be walking after your own flesh and blood, but I will give you my Holy Spirit, which was not poured out until Christ was resurrected. Death, burial, resurrection. And then God looks you in the eye and he says for the second time, arise. I have a word for you. I have a plan for you. Arise. Maybe some of you used to serve God and haven't been right with him for a while. Maybe there's somebody that knows there's more out there. I believe in God, but I know in my own heart, I'm not dedicated. God is saying this morning, arise, arise and go because I have not left you. I have not forsaken you. You tried to run away, but you didn't know. If you would have just turned around for a second, I'm right there. You can try to run from the presence of God, but you can't get away from it. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Everybody say forty days. The people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest even to the least. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he calls to be proclaimed and published through all of Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth, uh, sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we do not perish? That's pretty amazing. The reason that I had you say 40 days is because when Christ was glorified, after he was resurrected, he told all of his disciples, all of his apostles to go tarry in Jerusalem for a total of How long? 40 days. In 40 days, he was going to send something. Same message that Jonah has. See, we get caught up in, because of what Christ said even, that the sign of Jonah was just the three days and the three nights in the belly of the fish. But it was beyond that. Because Jonah walked into Nineveh and he said, in 40 days it shall be overthrown. But God walks into our lives in New Testament times through Christ, and he says, in 40 days, I've got a promise for you. Christ was resurrected Forty days later, as they sat in the upper room, what did God pour out? Poured out what? The Holy Spirit, right? I want to read Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Said, And Jesus, when he was baptized, Matthew 3 and 16, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Everybody say dove. And lighting upon him. So when the Spirit gets poured out, One of the likenesses, one of the symbols of the Spirit is a dove. So I want you to watch what's going on. 
Christ is in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. He's resurrected and he tells everybody, go tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Forty days from now, I have something special. Jonah's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He's spit up on the shoreline and he starts yelling at Nineveh. Forty days and something powerful, something amazing is going to happen and overthrow. But 40 days after the resurrection of Christ, God doesn't overthrow people. He starts to overthrow the enemy. He doesn't overthrow the earth. He overthrows the spirit and he delivers the Holy Ghost unto his people, telling the devil and making a statement from this day forth. No longer do you have dominion, but my people have a choice to allow me to have dominion in their life. Why is that so amazing? Because if you take Jonah's name and you look up the Hebrew terminology, there is only one definition for that name. Guess what it is? Dove. Jonah's name means dove, which means thousands of years before Christ. God called a prophet named Jonah to go speak into an evil and adulterous generation. And he died and was dead for three days and three nights. He was resurrected on their shoreline. And in 40 days, his message would be complete. The message from the dove. He had something for them. A message from Christ. God, in other words, has had you in mind from the very beginning. He's known what he is going to do from day one. What I'm showing you a picture of is a God named Dagon, false God. This is the God that Nineveh served. This was their main God. So they didn't know Jesus Christ. They didn't know the God of heaven and earth. They served many false idols. The leader of all their false idols was Dagon. I want to show you what a wonderful and merciful God we serve. We just read through the book of Jonah and you saw Jonah said this one thing. In 40 days, God will overthrow Nineveh. I want, to, I want you to think about this for a second. For all the years of their existence, Nineveh has served false gods. There's no reason why all of a sudden one day Jonah comes to town and says, hey, my God's going to overthrow this town. There's no reason why they wouldn't just laugh him. Laugh him right out of, right out of the, the city limits. That is not a very powerful message. If you go through and you read the last chapter of Jonah, you see that Jonah purposely did not preach good. He went to Nineveh and he hated Nineveh. He hated the people. He was hoping not a single one of them would repent. He says so at the end of his own book. So he basically didn't want to share the message. He just said, 40 days, God's going to overthrow this place. And then he went and sat and tried to find some shade. Sat under a tree for a little while. And then the whole nation repented for some odd reason. And then Jonah got mad and God was like, why are you mad? And he said, because I didn't even want to come here. I knew you were going to do that. I know you're a merciful and good God and graceful and I hate these people and you're going to save them. And I was hoping that they wouldn't get saved. That's a terrible preacher. That's a good God. There is nothing that God hates worse in the Old Testament Bible than idolatry. There is nothing that he comes down harder on people for than idolatry. God hates idolatry. But I want to show you real quickly how much God loves you and how much God loves me. Whether we be Corsairs experienced in him or whether we be Corinthians still struggling with the things of this world and still amateurs. The reason why they all repented wasn't the preaching, obviously. The reason that they all repented is because they served for thousands of years a man that looks like he's coming out of a fish. A merman, if you will. 
So three days and three nights in, they are a coastal town. They are a powerful town, large population. They have guards on the coastline. They have towers. They have people watching out for ships. They've got all that going on, warfare all the time. So these guys are sitting there on the coastline watching the shore, and they see this huge whale-like fish thing jump up out of the water and spit out a man, alive and well on the shoreline. They're not sure what's going on, but they just saw a man come out of a fish. They're thinking, Dagon, whatever he says, we're going to do. So they send messengers and they run and tell their king, you're not going to believe what just happened. But Dagon just showed up on our shore. How do you know? Because he came out of a fish, like literally just came out of a fish. And so the king's like, oh, my God. All right. Well, is everything ready? It's good. Okay. Is he coming? All right. What's he saying? He said in 40 days, God's going to overthrow this. Stop. I don't even want to hear it. Don't eat. Don't drink. Sackcloth, ashes. Everybody repent. Because this dude just came out of a fish. Right? We've never seen that before. So eventually through more preaching, Jonah lets him understand this is not Dagon. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is Dagon's not real. This God is real. God hates idolatry, yet he was willing to use what the people knew to get the message that he needed them to hear into their ears and give them a chance. Another time he did this was with Abraham and Isaac. Whenever God took, commanded Abraham to take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice his own son, we read it on Wednesday night Bible study last week. There's a verse right before he goes up there that says, Abraham looked and saw the place afar off. And in Hebrew, it doesn't mean in the distance. In Hebrew, it means in the future. And then we took it to a verse in the New Testament where Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced to see it. And everybody was like, what are you talking about? You're not even 50. And you're saying Abraham saw your day. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. You put those two together and you see that Abraham had a vision because he was walking up the same mountain where Christ would be crucified thousands of years later. He had a vision of what was going to happen. Right after he saw the place afar off, the next verse says, he turns around to his, uh, his servants and he says, me and the boy are going to go worship and we'll be right back. No qualms about it. He knew. I'm not sure what God's going to do on the top of this mountain, but I just saw a vision of my Lord and Savior, and I know that we'll be fine and we'll be back because God made me a promise. Now, what does that have to do with Jonah's story? Because in the land of Canaan, where that was happening at the time, the God that they served, Molech, required child sacrifice. God hates idolatry. But he told his lead man, this is what I want you to do. Walk up the mountain to sacrifice your son. Why? Because that's what they know. And what I'm going to show them when you get up there is that I'm a God that does not require the life of your children. I'm a God that will give you back the life of your children. I am not a God that lives inside of a fish. I am God over the fish. I am not a newcomer. I am not an experience. I am God of the universe. He is willing to take a bunch of Corinthians like me and you and bet the whole lot on us that even if you run, I'm going to follow you. If you don't turn around, I'm going to send a storm. If that doesn't work, I'm going to send a large fish. But you have said you've dedicated your life to me and I am never going to let you go. You need to know that this morning. God loves you. Amen. God will never leave you. Amen. God will never forsake you. I want to read one last verse out of the book of Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's start in verse number 45. This is 
really the last chapter of the first letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. Where the Corinthians are more, Corinthian means inexperience. There's one more chapter after this, 1 Corinthians 16, but it's really just a farewell and a little bit about how they do their offering. And this is the last chapter that talks about real spiritual things. Verse number 45, so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. That's comparing Adam and Jesus Christ. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterwards that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, so are those that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. This is Paul taking inexperienced Corinthians and helping mold them into corsairs. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and the mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Steadfast and unmovable. If I was going to take what I would consider a group of American Christians, a group of American Corinthians, if you will, which I'm not saying you are, but if I was going to, to try to take a group of people and express to them and explain to them the depth of the God that they serve, I'm not going to try to explain to you that you should serve the God of heaven and earth because he's going to help you get a new home or refinance the one that you have. I'm not going to explain to you that you should serve God because he'll help you get a new vehicle. I'm not going to explain to you that you should serve God because he's going to make everything peachy and rosy and that you're going to get this new country club type atmosphere and lifestyle. I'm not going to try to explain to you and, and, and point out to you our, our mega church and our mega ministry and, and how big and, and how many things God owns and all of the greatness and all of the goodness. Now, we need to know about that. But what will take a group of surface level Christians? In other words, let me put it to you like this. How could anybody ever possibly be a Christian and not want to tell other people about Jesus Christ? It's because they've got caught up in the Sunday school teaching about the goodness of God and forgotten that beyond that, it is literally the key to immortality. That this corruptible shall put on incorruption. That heaven is your reward. That God will not leave you. God is not done with you. That this life is vapor swift and the next life is eternal. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your profession is. It doesn't matter how long you've known God. It doesn't matter if you like me. It doesn't matter if you like Edgewater Church. It doesn't matter if we went too long. If our singers are good. It doesn't matter what country you live in. Nothing matters more than you understanding. You have a few years on this earth. You have a certain number of days. I don't want to scare you, but from the day you're born, if you live to be beyond 70, you have about 25, 26,000 days. That's not a whole lot. When I was a kid, I used to just assume people lived for millions of days. How long? My dad's, I won't say that. 
Uh, people, <laughs> when, I, when I was a kid, I look at 50 or 60 year old people and be like, man, it's going to be a million days before I'm that old. You know, you don't, you don't think about it. I, I think I was t- like 23 before I ever did the math. And I was like, oh my God, like, that's not even the price of a luxury vehicle. 25,000. That's not very much. And then I started, then I did the math of how old I already was, subtracted that. And I was like, wow. So I've got like 16,000 days left if I live to be a ripe old age. And then it kind of really struck me like, man, this life really is vapor swift. And it does no good to be a surface level Christian. You only have so many days to either sin as much as you can and try to have as much ridiculous, like grotesque fun as you possibly can. Or as many days to sit down and, and realize it's time to serve God. So if you try to do both, it's miserable. It's miserable. It's life inside the belly of a fish, if you will. It's a terrible life. Yeah, do you want or the other? I'm telling you, you have a short number of days to serve God and to be a voice that helps other people understand that God is real and to serve him too. I've lived both lives. I don't do both now. I do one now. I do this one. But I've also done the other one. And the Bible calls this one joy unspeakable and full of glory because I literally can't tell you why this is more fun than the other one, but it literally is. I can't explain to somebody at the club why this is better, but I'm telling you it's better. I can't explain to drunk people why it's more fun to be sober and they wouldn't remember anyway, but I'm just telling you that it is. Full disclosure, I was drunk when I got saved. I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm telling you God honest truth. Somebody had the boldness to speak the word of God into me right over here at Molly's Pub in Clear Lake while I was three sheets to the wind and I needed a designated driver. And they started talking to me about the Bible. And they said some things out of the book of James that I'd never heard before. Are you a Christian? Yeah, man. It was probably more like, yeah, I'm a Christian. So yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, what makes you a Christian? Oh, uh, Jesus. That's the answer to everything. All the Christian questions. Jesus. Right. Pretty much right. Said, okay, because you believe in, in God. You believe in one God. You believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Well, the devil also believes in him and trembles and is not saved. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you even talking about? And I'm not going to lie. As soon as he said that, it made sense to me. I was like, you idiot. Of course the devil knows Jesus is real. And of course he's not saved. Why have you thought that you knowing that it's real made you saved all these years? While you're drinking and doing everything else and drugging and everything that you're doing. Like, it's ridiculous. That never hit me before. And he started telling me about the Holy Ghost. And I was like, bro, just open the Bible and show me because I've never heard any of this before. He just flipped it open and showed me, and I was like, oh, my God. There's a good chance I'm going straight to hell. So I had to get, I literally went into my apartment and went upstairs. Um, I don't know how I made it upstairs, but I, I looked in the mirror, and I thought to myself, I, I still remember it to this day, very vividly, very clear. I had to make a decision because I don't like being a fake person. So I said to myself, I've either got to stop telling people that I'm a Christian, or I've got to change something because this, this isn't right. And then I realized I don't have the ability to change anything. I'm hooked on this stuff. So I just prayed and asked God, please. It was, I was living over here behind Baybrook Mall. It's like 10 years ago or something. 11. Wow. Just had a birthday. Uh, 11 years ago. And um, I don't know how it happens for everybody. I, all, you, all you can give is your own testimony. But and then 48 hours, man, I couldn't look at all the things I used to do, no drugs, no alcohol. 
ended up breaking up with the girl I was dating. I, gave, I mean, I wanted her to, to do the, the Christian thing too, but she didn't want to do it. So um, it was a huge change. And I, I can tell people that testimony and I can try to make them understand. And you can tell people your testimony. You can try to make them understand. But at the end of the day, it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. And what people really need to know is that God loves them. God will never leave them. God will never forsake them. And you, my friend, if you're going to cause these ripples and you're going to stand between the devil and the deep blue sea and you're going to raise the flag of blue Peter and you are going to be a corsair, you've got to be willing to meet people where they're at. That's what somebody did for me. They didn't say come to church and get saved. God used Dagon or an image of it. God used Abraham taking his son up a mountain because that's what I knew. He used a guy at a bar because that's where I was. First, he played pool with me. Then he offered to be my designated driver. Then he got me saved. Pretty cool deal. So I want to encourage you as we're ending our series on ripples, make some ripples of your own. Take a stand. Be a witness. Be a Corsair. Even if you feel like a Corinthian. Go and meet people where they're at and speak the word of God. Can you do that? Is God good? Stand to your feet this morning. Let's worship.